you might notice if the attitude of waiting is consistent with being present. It'd be great if I just dropped the mic and walked out. So much has already been said about what I might call this dharma way of listening. A listening that combines our attentiveness and receptivity with some sense of embodiment, some sense of being connected with the internal experience as you're connected with the listening. So inviting you to take that posture of receptivity. So there was a, um, a couple, married couple that were celebrating their 30th anniversary and they decided they would vacation from Minneapolis where they live to Florida at the rundown motel that they had had their honeymoon in. And uh, both the husband and the wife traveled quite a bit for their work, so they couldn't quite figure out the schedules, and it turned out that the husband, Adam, would arrive a day early, and then Helen, the wife, would join him the next day. And uh, so, Adam, this is in the early days of the Internet. Some of you may remember when a hotel having Internet meant there was a terminal in the lobby and you could log in and use email. So, so Adam got to the hotel and he saw there was this terminal, internet terminal in the lobby. And he said, oh, you know, I should, have, I should send Helen an email. That'd be really nice. So he sent her an email, but he mistyped her email address. Instead of AOL 90405, it was AOL 9046. <laughs> so he got the, the email actually went to a different coincidentally, a woman named Helen, whose husband had just passed away. And uh, she was just back from the funeral and the wake and thought, maybe I should check email, see what friends and family have 
have to say, you know, looking for some comfort. So she had her teenage son come log her into AOL. And a young woman, you know, in her 40s, and her husband also in his 40s had just dropped dead. Like, you know, we've been saying you never know when the time of death will come. So the son helps her log on to the internet and goes into the other room, and he hears a scream and a thud of his mother fainting. And then he walks into the room and he reads the screen. And it says, my dearest Helen, I've just arrived today. I know you're surprised to hear from me. They have internet here, so I thought I'd send you an email. Everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. P.S. Sure is hot down here. <laughs> A really important practice for me has been uh, what's referred to as the five subjects for frequent recollection. Uh, and I done this as a chant, you know, like off and on for the better part of a decade. So I'd like to share the chant with you. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. It pivots now. I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, Born of my kama, related to my kama, abide supported by my kama, whatever kama I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Thus we should frequently recollect There's something about the chanting, actually, that makes it more of an embodied kind of experience. So the first four subjects for recollection, these truths that you know, we've been talking about a lot, the truth of aging, sickness, and death, and the inevitability of being separated from everything that we hold dear one way or another. Uh, I have a sense that in this context, in this retreat, you all get this teaching. But it's worth noting that a lot of times when I give this teaching in different contexts, people have a kind of uh, reaction that it sounds really depressing or it uh, has some sort of like nihilistic message. You know, it's kind of like a version of life sucks and then you die. But this is a misunderstanding of the teaching. You know, the, the first four 
recollections are observations about reality, truths. And the fifth one is really actually a practice instruction. It's a reminder that in the face of these existential issues of life and death, there is some agency. We do have some way of working with our experience. So kama, of course, is the Pali rendering of the word karma. And when we use the word karma in English, we're usually talking about results. And that person had terrible karma. Look at the thing that happened to them. But the Buddha used the word karma very specifically to mean the action itself. So all actions of body, speech, and mind are karma. So this line, I'm the owner, and this line goes on quite a bit. You know, it's like, I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma. Like karma is everything. And the instruction is how can we develop agency and you know, with moments of mindfulness to influence future moments. It's almost like it's not that nothing matters, it's that everything matters. Or everything, every little thing is important in some way. And the practice is uh, to bring that sense of urgency, that sense of time is limited, a reminder that death is, uh, comes quickly. There's a modern version of this practice. It's an app called We Croak. And I have this app. It's been quite a joy, actually. Five times a day, it sends you a notification, and the notification just says, don't forget, you're going to die. <laughs> and paradoxically, you know, I get this on my watch five times a day, and don't forget, you're going to die, okay? And it, it, whatever drama I'm involved in, whatever argument or petty things going on, it, it loses its grip in the face of my question, I ask myself, is this something that I'm going to be pondering on my deathbed? And it never is. So that's a kind of impetus to let it go. Do you hear about the Buddhist coroner who kept getting fired? <laughs> he kept getting fired because under cause of death, he always wrote birth. <laughs> <laughs> been saving up these death jokes for a long time <laughs> it's a poem I like it's called the, the Dakini Speaks and the Dakini is a, uh, a female muse sometimes a deva or a like subtle being with a generally volatile temperament. And I love this poem because I have a lot of Dakinis in my life. <laughs> Women who aren't afraid to tell the straight truth. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we haven't truly noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. We have missed it for so long. Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings, but please 
Let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she's only wild, and her compassion is exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage, because there aren't any anyway. We are not children anymore. The true adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the dance of no hope. So Eugene was talking about the legend of the life of the Buddha. That, you know, he was kept away from any experience of uh, sickness, aging, or death. Uh, I have a similar life experience, actually. I was sharing with my uh, inquiry group that my first funeral I attended, I was 35 years old. It was the first time I'd ever seen a dead body. We didn't even have pets growing up because my mom had lost a dog when she was a child and was still traumatized by that. She lost a dog and she lost a chicken. A chicken that she just loved this chicken. And at the time in India, you know, there was like, they lived in an urban area, but there were a couple of chickens roaming the property and um, you know, those chickens would become dinner. Uh, but she said, this one you cannot eat. And then the cook, you know, that time most people had servants. The cook went on vacation and the substitute cook killed the wrong chicken. And this was so traumatic to my mom as a young girl. She just never, pets were out of the question. I mean, I whined and whined and whined for pets, but we couldn't have them. About four years ago, almost four years ago, my mom passed away, and um, our relationship was pretty complex and fraught, a lot of conflict. Um, but when it was clear she was nearing the end, I, uh, I dropped everything, and I went, and I spent almost a month with her. I'm so happy I did that, because there was so much, uh, so much I learned from that experience, um, really watched her let go, little by little. She was uh, tiny, 5'2", a good day, 98 pounds, but she had a huge personality. My father's pet name for her was the Samurai. <laughs> she always got her way. And one of her things was uh, compulsive cleaning, like everything had to be spick and span. She loved that word, spick and span. She'd say it with her Indian accent. Everything must be spick and span. And uh, I watched that dissolve as there were people around her. You know, the first few days of her lying in bed, she was like micromanaging everybody. <laughs> and then she began not to care so much about that. And then my mom was a very uh, polished, had a very polished social presentation. She was very good with people. She would say nice things to people and everybody liked her. Uh, and uh, <laughs> when people would come to visit, and uh, my parents had a very extended Indian community in Phoenix, uh, lots of people coming through to visit. Um, the first few days, she was very gracious and welcoming and inviting, and then as time went by, 
First, just to me, she would make faces. <laughs> the people she didn't like were coming to visit. And then towards the end, she, was just, she would just say to people, you know, I don't like your energy, you need to leave. <laughs> Which I cannot imagine her ever saying. She was very modest, you know, in kind of accordance with Indian culture. And towards the end, when she would get hot, she would just throw her sheet on the ground and just lie in the bed naked. Uh, which was shocking, but also like strangely liberating just to see like she was just really going to be true to herself and didn't care about anything. And it was three o'clock in the morning on the last night. Uh, I feel so blessed because I was holding her hand and I was chanting to her when I saw her take her last, last breath. And uh, it's so meaningful to me that I was offering her something, you know, something that hopefully was comfort, something that's very precious to me. And um, there was a thought, she took her last breath, she's gone. And then there was a feeling of, no, she's not gone. <laughs> There's a feeling of a lingering presence for maybe a minute or two. And then it was like a, I almost heard, heard or felt a whoosh sound as uh, that presence disappeared. And in that moment, the words that came to my mind, before I could even sort of grasp what had happened or have any feeling of grief, words I didn't even really know that I had internalized were... uh, the Buddha's words, all too soon this body will lie on the ground, cast aside, deprived of consciousness like a useless scrap of wood. I really felt that way. It's so, so mysterious feeling to feel the presence of someone you love one moment. And then I really felt like this, this is no different from a scrap of wood. And at that time, corporate law was my steady gig and... Meditation teaching was like a, I used to call it a side hustle. Not much of a hustle in terms of making money, but the side hustle, passion project. And in that moment, that very moment, I decided that that had to shift. I had to make this more of the primary where I spend my time and my energy. And over the next few hours, there was just this steady stream of thoughts that were appearing. Uh, Meditate, do not delay, lest you later regret it words of the Buddha. Meditate like your hair is on fire. Meditate as if you were balancing a pot of oil on your head. Meditate as if your life depends on it, because it does depend on it. All these things just kept appearing, these thoughts. I had another experience with life and death that was quite profound more recently. Uh, My wife and I went to South Africa to do a month-long retreat with our teachers, Tanissa and Kisaro. And after the retreat, we did a little jungle safari. And uh, we were in the Jeep, and there was a... They have these... I guess they call them antelopes. They're like our deers, but they're deer, but they're much smaller. And there was an antelope right on the side of the road. Like, usually they keep their distance from cars, but right on the side of the little trail, kind of squatting down. And we're kind of watching, like, what's going on with this little um, ibex, an ibex or an impala or something. And all of a sudden, a baby popped out of this little deer. 
And it was so moving just to see like this unexpected birth and I mean, everyone in the Jeep was weeping with this poignancy of what we had seen and the baby was kind of struggling to stand up and the mom was licking it and um, maybe 90 seconds went by and then we saw a dark figure emerging from the brush, a hyena that grabbed the little baby by the nape of the neck and left. Now we were crying at the loss of this beautiful being, birth and death in 90 seconds. And I was so angry at that hyena uh, for days. I was just like, uh, just couldn't let go of my aversion and irritation at this being. And then uh, we drove to where the hyenas live and we saw their dens they steal uh, their homes from termites or some other sort of creature, which was like another reason to, and another thing, thieves, <laughs> murderers and thieves. <laughs> but then I saw their babies, and they were so cute. I mean, just adorable, big eyes, and they would blink at you. Uh, and then I learned that um, the hyenas are the only animals in that, that jungle that eat all of the prey, including the bones, and their droppings are calcium-rich, and there's a whole ecosystem that depends on that calcium-rich. And that was a shift. You know, it felt like the, the distress and the irritation was kind of from this myopic point of view, and when I could see the bigger picture, then in some ways it made more sense the irritation went more to a kind of awe of this mysterious web of interdependence. So the Buddha called this sense of urgency that arose from me, sambhaga. It's a passion or enthusiasm for practice. Uh, And my experience of this was actually quite joyful. It felt like in some ways I had been working my way up to that, and I just needed some catalyst to push me over the edge. Many people uh, I have known, and in other times of my life, I've experienced this much more in a much more prickly way. Um, I like the way that uh, Tinsar Bhikkhu defines Sambhaga, stronger words, and I think it can be a continuum for people, but. He describes it as at least three clusters of feeling at once. First, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that come with realizing the futility and meaningness of life as it is normally lived. An anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of this meaningless cycle and a chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly. So this, this realization of the futility of life is actually quite a common experience. Um, it comes from loss. It comes from uh, people who are very much in contact with a lot of suffering in the world through their profession or through circumstance. Uh, we see it often with people that do extended retreat practice. There's a kind of disillusionment that happens. You know, the Buddha describes this as a, 
a cloth that the, all the color ran out and it's just faded. All the shiny things in life that used to captivate us and attract our attention lose their luster. Some version of this is often the seed for a middle life crisis. I had a quarter life crisis, actually. You know, I, uh, 19 years of schooling to become a lawyer, and I had some success, a good student, ended up with a highly coveted, prestigious job at a top law firm, uh, and was absolutely miserable. It was like the whole thing I had premised at least the last seven years of my life on was not at all what I thought it would be. And so I had that sense of, like, that sense of urgency, that sense of uh, uh, wanting to figure out a way. At that time, it really was the question of, like, what is the way out of this? Uh, that's really what brought me to more serious meditation practice, which eventually led me to the Dharma, which eventually somehow, still trying to figure out how it led me to be sitting in front of you, what was different this time, 25 years later, was that I knew this experience. Like, I could see what was happening because I had this map in my mind of Sambega. And there's no longer a question in my mind of what is the way out. So there wasn't that anxious sense of searching as much. And the, the, so the energy was just more, it was just more joyful. It's like, I, I know what I need to do, and now I just need to do it. It's really helpful when that, when and if that urgency comes for us, that we have a path. We have confidence in some way, whether it's the Buddhist path or some other path of um, finding some sense of ease and grace in the difficulty of these central questions of life and death. The caution flag, the thing to really notice is uh, what he describes as a chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness and having let ourselves live so blindly. Um, so many times, you know, I'm with people here uh, practicing and, uh, you know, the thought arises, of, oh, gee, you know, I wish I had done this when I was younger. <laughs> And there's poignancy to this, you know. It is a great gift for those of us who are exposed to these teachings at a younger age. And at the same time, uh, I like what Jack Cornfield says, you know, that part of this practice is to give up hope for a better past. And uh, you can ask the question, when's the best time to plant a tree? And I might say 30 years ago. <laughs> But when's the best time you can actually plant a tree is right now. I think sometimes um, it's easy to mistake the cultivation practice uh, for a sense that we have to become someone else, someone different, better version of ourselves. I used to talk about my own version 2.0 with more features and I wouldn't crash as much. One of my teachers says he spent decades trying to hate himself and to be a better person. 
And I think that's a real problem in our culture that, you know, there's so much emphasis on self-improvement and, uh, you know, I mean, I've read all the self-improvement books and I've gotten a lot out of them, but when self-improvement becomes self-negating, when it becomes self-denying, uh, almost feels like a kind of violence. I'd like to share a quote from Jim Sinclair. He's a advocate for autistic community. And um, I don't have any commentary or really experience with autism, uh, but I share these words because I feel a lot of resonance with them. He says, when my parents say, I wish my child did not have autism, what they're really saying is, I wish the child I have did not exist and I had a different, non-autistic child instead. This is what we hear when you mourn over our existence. This is what we hear when you pray for a cure, that your fondest wish is that someday we will cease to be, and strangers you can love will move in behind our faces. Every time I read this, I, I choke up a little bit, and it's like a kick in the gut, because I recognize that stream of thinking in my own inner critic. And this is really where that pivot point of the five recollections becomes so important. I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Buddha spoke about karma actually in pretty simple ways sometimes. Uh, one of my favorites is from the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak and act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind. And happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. This simple description of you know, how we speak, how we act, has effects, how we think. Another way he described karma is whatever a person thinks and frequently ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Whatever we're practicing, we're perfecting. And since we're pretty much always thinking, we're always practicing something. And our neurology, people in the room who could speak more eloquently on this, but our neurology is such that we are attracted to things, our attention is attracted to things that are stressful and dangerous. The people who compete for our attention and our eyeballs, they know this. So the field is filled with things that are shocking and alarming and grab our attention. Even in silly ways, the other day I, I saw a, you know, obvious clickbait that said, these three foods you eat every day are ruining your health. 
Like, how am I not going to click on that? <laughs> I don't want to ruin my health. <laughs> so we're either engaged in this endeavor that we're all engaged in this week of intentionally cultivating beneficial qualities, steadiness of mind, compassion, presence, or we're by default kind of practicing whatever's in the ether, whatever our culture, our media, our family. It's almost by definition not helpful. When you practice what's in the default field, and I know a lot of people who do this, uh, they tend to be depressed and anxious and restless, so on. These are not... uh, and I, I actually hate the phrase these times. I think it's overused, but it feels like it's these times. And though karma sometimes seems like it's a forward looking thing, there's a very important question of what am I practicing in this moment? How am I using the mind in this moment? What's my state of mind? And this practice we're engaged in of developing mindfulness creates more and more opportunity to see what am I practicing in this moment? Is this beneficial? Great. Is it not? And having the agency to pivot. Mindfulness has this, in my mind, very mysterious quality. And Pam was talking about the reorganization that happens in the system and the unique quality of it tends to dissolve that which afflicts us and it tends to flower that which is beneficial. Isn't that amazing? Like the same quality of attentiveness. It's like alchemical power and awareness that transforms things in ways that are beneficial. Another section from the Dhammapada that I really love. The restless, agitated mind, hard to protect, hard to control. The sage makes straight as the fletcher, the shaft of the arrow. For those who are unsteady of mind, who do not know true Dhamma, and whose serenity wavers, wisdom does not mature. I learned something about fletchers. This is probably not true in Arrows are probably fiberglass or something these days. But in the old days when arrows were made of wood, being a fletcher um, required a lot of skill and a lot of diligence and a lot of patience because in nature, um, things tend not to be straight. It's very hard to find a piece of wood and cut it in a way that it's actually perfectly straight or to cut it in a way that it's actually perfectly uh, circular. So it takes a lot of cultivation to, you know, get it perfectly circular, and then actually to get it straight, they steam the wood. They used to steam the wood so that it can be bent into a way that's perfectly straight. Um, And I love that analogy because I feel like that's what we've been doing all week is cultivating this. And it's a patient, steady process, and um, there's skill to it. We get more skillful as we continue to practice There's a kind of paradigm in life that many of us give, you know, what Tinsarvika might call life as it is usually lived. 
And that paradigm is something like happiness and well-being and satisfaction comes from arranging the conditions just right. All the things that are pleasant, kind of line them up, keep them front. All the things that are unpleasant, we pretend or we push them aside or we deny. Death is a prime example of this in our culture, the kind of denial of death and Western culture. Um, But in that way, we're conditioning our happiness. We can't be happy unless we have X or we get rid of Y. And uh, even when we can manage to arrange the conditions in just the right way, you know, like the conditions won't last, or even if the conditions last, sometimes the mind changes. It's like you... uh, You're a single person, and you meet someone, and you just know, this is it. We're soulmates. Definitely, we're lovers in a distant lifetime. And everything's great. And then a month goes by, and you realize why you haven't kept in touch in 2,000 years. (laughs) 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 The Buddha was actually quite clear that, you know, nothing that is conditioned... Nothing that arises and falls away from conditions can be a source of lasting happiness. So one of the ways we work with this conundrum is to examine life as it's usually lived and poke the holes in that paradigm. In the practice discussion meetings, many of you have used words like struggle, difficulty, challenging, tough, you know, all these kinds of synonyms. And um, it's a real experience. I don't want to deny that in any way. I mean, it's kind of the, the central reason that we're all here is to um, alleviate suffering, alleviate the sense of struggle, the sense of difficulty. And at the same time, the vast majority of the descriptions of struggle goes something like this. There's a very unpleasant experiencing happening and we don't want it to be there. And the struggle is actually in the not wanting as much as it is in the thing itself. And in this strength, sense of struggle stimulates all kinds of thinking. You know, the desires arise endlessly of all the things we imagine will soothe the thing that's disturbing us. Uh, I, I came on a long retreat once and I had given up sugar right before the retreat. I just decided this would be a good way to go cold turkey. And then, Every time I would feel restless or every time I would feel a little bit sleepy, I would start craving a cookie. I thought about cookie. And I really believed, like, this cookie was going to be my salvation. (laughs) And don't ever do this, but I snuck off campus. There's a secret way to get to the store in uh, Woodacre. And I got a cookie. (laughs) And the first bite of that cookie was... Maybe the best bite of anything I've ever had in my life. (laughs) And the second bite of that cookie was meh. And the third bite of that cookie, I just felt guilty and kind of like ashamed of myself. 
Or sometimes it shows up as a version. You know, if only that person next to me weren't so fidgety, then I could relax, or they weren't breathing so loud. Uh, and we can really believe these ideas. You know, we really become fixated with them. And when we're caught or entranced in those ideas, it really hinders our ability to be present for what's actually unfolding. Many of you have reported restlessness, sleepiness. Some of you have asked for antidotes. And uh, maybe there are some antidotes, but I actually think it's so much more important to let these streams of energies be your teacher. Many of you have noticed a kind of gripping, intense boredom. This is so familiar to me. Uh, I find myself reading the bulletin board again and again. <laughs> this is what a tick looks like. This is poison oak. This is the rattlesnake. <laughs> and the boredom is simply the practice revealing how addicted the mind is to stimulation. And we carry the sum total of all human knowledge, all human entertainment, literature, music, film, TV shows in our pockets. And many of us, I count myself on that, will reach for that stimulation in the tiniest moment of nothing happening. And practice has this quality of revealing the deeper truths that often go hidden in our daily life. So rather than trying to make boredom go away, the practice invites us to bring the experience of boredom into awareness, to make ourselves available and engaged with the experience of being bored. What does it feel like in the body? Are there places in the body that are tense or contracted? There some kind of energy moving in the body, like a restlessness or a wanting? To get really granular with that experience, does it have a shape? Is it static? What's the quality of the energy? Is it vibratory or swirling or tingling, pulsing? To really embrace the truth of the human experience of being boredom, this is, as Pam said, the truth that sets us free. I like the the words of Leonard Cohen, um, I know your burden's heavy as you wheel it through the night. The guru says it's empty, but it doesn't mean it's light. We can hold both these things true, that the struggle is real, but when looked at from another angle, the struggle is empty. Or the struggle is optional, maybe. So rather than engaging in this constant exercise of rearranging the furniture, trying to find the right conditions, we can learn to befriend this moment, to develop equanimity with how it is in this moment. Uh, There's a story uh, about JFK. Um, I heard one of his, at the time, young staffers on the radio talking about how when they were in the airplane, I don't know if they called it Air Force One back then, they were on the president's airplane, 
um, JFK would always complain about the temperature. He always felt, felt, felt that it was too cold. And, um, you know, the pilot and the crew keep it cold on purpose, you know, because the, the crew is moving around, they're in the kitchen, they're cooking, uh, people get sleepier when it's colder, people have less motion sickness. There's like a lot of reasons that you'd want to keep the cabin cooler. But it's the president, so what are you going to do? So they gave him a Spox on his desk and said, if you turn this dial, you know, it'll change the temperature. And so he would was constantly fiddling with the dials, never once complained about the temperature. But it turned out, of course, some of you anticipated the box wasn't connected to anything. <laughs> but somehow this endeavor of fiddling with the dials um, became a preoccupation. I feel like oftentimes retreat is like that for me. Like, I'm just trying to fiddle with the dials to just get everything just right instead of relaxing into how it actually is. It's a balancing act. You know, there's a dance between developing agency to change our experience, to uplift the mind when, it, when that's helpful, to cultivate metta or compassion when that's helpful, um, when conditions are with our control, to be skillful about changing those conditions and to accept fully the conditions that we don't have any, some version of the serenity prayer, you know, having the wisdom to know the difference. And all this turns on the commitment to continually turn towards the truth of this moment. I like um, this quote from Mark Nepo. When we hesitate in being direct, we unknowingly slip something on, some added layer of protection that keeps us from feeling the world. And often this thin covering is the beginning of a loneliness, which if not put down, diminishes our chances of joy. It's like wearing gloves every time we touch something and then forgetting we chose to put them on, we complain that nothing feels quite real. Our challenge each day is not to get dressed to face the world, but rather to unglove ourselves so the doorknob feels cold, the car handle feels wet, and the kiss goodbye feels like the lips of another being, soft and unrepeatable. One of my favorite uh, encapsulations of the the Dhamma, the path of practice. Uh, it comes from China, you know, in uh, the time of the Buddha, he was in northeastern India. He started teaching the Dhamma, and almost immediately, uh, monks would carry the teachings to China, and they would try to incorporate them into their way of thinking and their worldview. And, but the Dhamma kept coming and coming and coming you know, for hundreds of years, and there was, like, more and more to synthesize. And... Um, Hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha, a great Chinese sage wrote a treatise on the Dhamma. And in that treatise, he had sort of like one phrase that encapsulated like the essence of the teaching. I love these sort of like cliff notes. The Pali Canon is like 25, 30,000 pages. It's like one sentence. 
You want to hear it? (laughs) (laughs) So the sentence is awakening. And for this word awakening, you know, the Buddha actually gave 33 synonyms for awakening. I've never done this before, but I'm going to share the 33 synonyms for awakening. It's a lot of words to describe the wordless. <laughs> um, as they say, fingers pointing to the moon. So just feel into what these words feel like. But also their translation. So see even if these resonate. The unconditioned. The destruction of lust, hate, delusion. The uninclined. The taintless. The truth. The other shore the subtle, the very difficult to see, the unaging, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving, the wonderful, the amazing, the unailing, the unailing state, the unafflicted, dispassion, purity, freedom, non-attachment, the island, the shelter, the asylum, the refuge, the destination and the path leading to the destination. So these uh, 33 words for awakening, you can use whichever one appeals to you. And the phrase summing up the entirety of the Dhamma is awakening beckons from within everything. Awakening beckons from within everything. I love this idea of beckoning, you know, like, Literally all of life's experience, all the joys, all the sorrows, the beautiful and the painful are kind of like calling out to us to wake up, to realize our true nature, to step out of the prisons we construct for ourselves. And the heart longs for this freedom. It's the reason that probably most of us are here in this room. Definitely the reason I'm here. And somehow we don't hear this call so much, distracted by the busyness of life, caught in the trance of thinking, thoughts and ideas, pulling along the stream of karma from our culture, our family. What I love most about this teaching is it's everything. it's, It's dismantling that idea of like, oh, this is the good experience, this is the bad experience. This is the one I want. This is the one I don't want. That all of it, we can see all of it as a teaching. And someone was observing earlier today how um, some of the most profound trans, trans, transmutations, most of the most profound transformations come from periods of difficulty. Now, it takes friction to polish a jewel. It takes some, you know, grist for the mill, something. There's, there's that. Many ways this is expressed, you know, like the, 
whatever's in the way is the way, or the, the way around is the way through. Uh, I love Tore Ng's Bodhisattva vow, just pointing to this. How can we be ungrateful to anyone or anything? Even though someone may be a fool, we can be compassionate. If someone turns against us, speaking ill of us and treating us bitterly, it is best to bow down. This is the Buddha appearing before us, finding ways to free us from our own attachments, the very ones that have made us suffer again and again. Now on each flash of thought, a lotus flower blooms, and on each flower, a Buddha. May we share this mind with all beings, that we in the world together will grow in wisdom. And this way of thinking that awakening beckons from within everything, every thought has this Buddha potential of being a thought that leads to awakening. We'll end with a personal story. Um, I came to this path more formally in my 20s, but when I was a small child, it was about five, uh, my father was part of a Zen community where I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. Surprisingly enough, there was a little Zen community there. And he would take me with him because that's what Indian parents do. They don't, the idea of childcare is uh, ridiculous. And so here I'm, this five-year-old with a bunch of adults who are meditating, and they're sitting very solemnly facing the wall. And uh, I was a very mischievous kid, so I'd like get up in their faces and, and blow on people, <laughs> crawl in their laps. And every time I'd crawl in someone's lap, I would feel like a gentle embrace. And then when I would squirm a little bit, I would feel a release. And I, it was so um, impactful on me because... These were a group of adults who, I didn't have words for it, but they were really attentive. People would come down to my level and they would really listen to what I had to say. I had a lot to say <laughs> at that age, still do. And uh, uh, this had a profound impact on me. And when I was really suffering 20 years later, part of what drew me to practice was the remember of that a memory of that quality of being and the, there was so much laughter and levity and um, so one time this this center was founded by a Korean Zen master whose idea was let's put centers in far-flung places outside of urban areas where people are interested in practicing so the Zen master came to visit it was a big deal you know he was only there maybe once twice a year and um, my father and I picked him up from the airport and drove to this little house that was being rented for the Sangha space. And uh, he was kind of a stereotypical Zen master. He's like, you know, very buoyant, and, but yet steady, and had a kind of gravitas about him, but laughed easily. And uh, he's probably in his 70s, but he, he, we arrived, and he flung the car door open, he bounded out of the car, and he bounded across the lawn, and he bounded up a half flight of steps. He was about to bound into the sangha space, but he didn't realize that the screen door was closed. <laughs> and then 
the most cartoonish fashion. He bounced off of the screen, rolled down a half a flight of steps, rolled across the lawn, and was lying face up unconscious. This is like, I don't think I've ever been with a group of 30 or 40 people where it was that quiet. It's just like this moment of like, is, what happened? And then, this is what I love about the community. There's so much irreverence that someone said in a slightly exaggerated southern accent, we darn gone killed the master. <laughs> and then, and then master so came, came to, and um, we had stopped laughing. Like, we laughed. Not laugh at that, but then we had stopped laughing. And then when he came to, he started laughing and laughing. And laughing, and laughing. And even later in the day, I remember vividly, he was holding his arm because it was injured. But he was holding his arm, and then he would kind of chuckle about it. (laughs) And I thought, to this day, I think this may be the best Dharma transmission that I've ever received. (laughs) For all the things you could have, you know, be angry or ashamed or blaming or... um, He'd cultivated a mind that just led to, you know, like being able to laugh at himself and being joyful. So let's just let all those words settle. Thank you for your kind listening. We have a period of walking, and then you can come back here at 9 for the last formal sit of the evening. And you all can go ahead. It'll take me a while to get going. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.